0: Politics, politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finnelli. Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists. Business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli.
1: Good afternoon, this is Dean Finelli with Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today where we talk about all the facts in the life science industry. I am very excited to have as our guest today Mr. Paul Mango, who was formerly Deputy Chief of Staff for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, Before we bring on uh, Mr. Mango, let's uh, see what's going on in the life science industry. Uh, A lot to do with COVID. We've recently heard about the new Omicron variant. Uh, Initial information that is coming out uh after in the short term it's only been uh, around about two weeks that we've been aware of but initial data shows that it looks like it may be a little more transmissible but uh so far perhaps it may be not as um as virile or uh, the likelihood of progressing to that severe disease uh is not as high as it was with delta this is preliminary information i think it's going to take uh more time uh to officially learn, you know, more about this Omicron variant, but based on initial data, that certainly uh, looks like some good news out of this. I know a lot of people were frustrated when they heard about this. We saw that light at the end of the tunnel in March, Delta came around. Seems like we're making it trudging through this variant and now hearing about Omicron, a lot of people were frustrated. So uh, any good news we can get out of this is certainly good news. It does look like um, at least from statements that have come out of Pfizer that the Omicron variant may not the uh, excuse me, the vaccines may not be as effective against the Omicron variant. Again, uh, this is a small subset of data. Uh, Moderna and Pfizer have both indicated they're looking into a variant specific booster shot. But in this case, I think some good news is people that have got the booster uh, do seem to have very good protection against the, this Omicron variant. Uh, so just kind of summarize this point, Uh, It looks like the first two shots, so someone being fully vaccinated, um, the effectiveness may not be as high. Getting that third shot, that booster shot, does increase the efficacy of the vaccines. Now, making that statement about fully vaccinated, uh, Dr. Fauci has indicated uh, currently fully vaccinated means if you've got an mRNA vaccine, You get those two shots, you're fully vaccinated after two weeks. With J&J, you get your shot. Two weeks later, you're fully vaccinated. It looks like the definition of fully vaccinated will change, uh, meaning you have to have that second, if you got the Johnson & Johnson or third shot, if you got the mRNA vaccines, uh, to be considered fully vaccinated. Currently, we're still uh, at the, the two shots for the mRNA is fully vaccinated, but uh, Dr. Fauci has said it's a matter of when, not if the definition of vac- fully vaccinated changes. So that's uh, certainly not what people want to hear. I know we're all tired of getting these jabs, but it looks like, um, you know, at some point we'll be at a situation where uh, hopefully, you know, this is kind of like a flu thing. I don't think this will go away. And people we've talked to on the show uh, have indicated that the idea is that, you know, how do we deal with this as a long term endemic issue And, you know, once we're through this pandemic, but it doesn't look like, uh, at least in the opinions that people we've talked to, that this will be fully eradicated. Uh, We know this is a global pandemic. Uh, We've heard the Omicron variant uh, has come out of of South Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa as a region is one of the least vaccinated areas of the planet. So, again, we know when we talk about this, this is a global pandemic. This is no matter how many people in the United States We have vaccinated, you know, as long as the global population still is not fully vaccinated. We're going to continue to see variants pop up. We're going to continue to see infections pop up. So it's really, truly a global mission that we all have to be a part of. And the U.S. is doing a very good job. The U.S. has donated millions of doses. Um, You know, it's up to other countries as well to kick in. But certainly uh, under the Biden administration, we've heard that millions of doses have been Uh, given to developing countries that don't have readily available access to the current vaccines. Uh, The U.S. continues, uh, pharmaceutical and biotech companies continue to develop therapeutic agents. So even as these new variants pop up, you know, we're definitely not in the same situation we were a year and a half, two years ago, where when this just started, we have a lot more knowledge of how the virus acts, how the vaccines work. (laughs) and the availability of therapeutics, whether it's monoclonal antibodies, antivirals, um, or even steroids to prevent that inflammation in the lungs that have been around, uh, show to work uh, and prevent the progression of the disease from this moderate state to the severe state. So certainly that's uh, good news. And we've learned recently that um, additional therapeutics are coming out. Pfizer has just come out with a, excuse me, AstraZeneca has just come out with a Uh, potential, what they're calling, an COVID-19 antibody cocktail, which would be administered to healthy people. Uh, Certainly, there are people out there, despite a lot of this hesitation and this uh, anti-vax language that we've heard out there, there are people that legitimately can't get a vaccine, whether they've had an allergic reaction to it or they have another condition that prevents them uh, from getting the vaccine. So this uh, antibody cocktail that was developed by AstraZeneca is given to healthy people uh, to prevent them who haven't been vaccinated, to prevent them from uh, progressing to severe disease. So that's certainly um, another quiver and another arrow in the quiver uh, against COVID. So I'd like to bring on our guest today on Politics and Life Science Radio, uh, Mr. Paul Mingo. Paul, as I mentioned, was Deputy Chief of Staff for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, During this time, he served as Secretary Azar's Former liaison to Operation Warp Speed, where he was involved in nearly all strategic, operational, financial aspects of the program. Uh, just really a, a public servant, dedicated his life to this country. He started his professional career as a field artillery officer in the U.S. Army, serving both the 82nd Airborne Division uh, and the 8th Infantry, <coughs> excuse me, Infantry Division. So we're very happy to have Paul with us today. Paul also uh, has a book coming out. Uh, that discusses uh, Operation Warp Speed. So I'll talk about that as well. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Hey Dean, it's great to be on your
1: show. So we've talked about Operation Warp Speed many times on this show and, you know, just the almost a miracle of science getting it, knowing how typical drug progression and development happens, vaccine development happens, getting a vaccine, you know, within a year is truly a remarkable feat. You know, can you give us a little background? You know, that was compared to almost landing on the moon. Do you kind of have that? Agree that that's kind of uh, a, a good analogy to this. Well, Dean, I definitely agree. It's
2: an exceptional American achievement. Uh, but as I write in the book, we we bristle at the word miracle uh, because this didn't happen by accident. Uh, this was an extraordinarily well-planned, strategic, and almost flawlessly executed initiative on the part of the federal government, but also, um, you know, enabling private industry to be successful. And I think it's a very important point for the listeners to understand the government didn't deliver vaccines. The government enabled our spectacular private sector, pharmaceutical companies, distributors, uh, you know, um, those who actually manufacture the raw materials to go into vaccines. We enabled them uh, to be successful. But it was a very strategic initiative. And I'll just talk about maybe two or three aspects of that one is Secretary Azar, as you know, former pharmaceutical executive understood the risk profile of large pharmaceutical companies. And very early on, he said, we're going to have to assume the risk for manufacturing vaccines as a federal government long before there's any emergency use authorization. So that was a big advance, you know, in terms of the timing because we had millions of doses of vaccines available 24 hours after the FDA issued uh, the um, the EUAs. I think the second thing is we had this spectacular scientist, Dr. Monsef Slaoui, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know Monsef. And he's, he's a strategist um, and he had a venture capital mindset and he said, we're going to invest in six different vaccines across three different technologies. And Everyone in retrospect can say, well, geez, well, success was certainly guaranteed. We have these MRA technologies. We have Johnson & Johnson. We didn't know in July of 2020 which vaccines were going to be successful. So he said, we're going to invest in six across three platforms. We only need one to win, just like a venture capitalist. We only need one to win because... Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, came over and told us that the team, the Operation Warp Speed team, for every day I'm running this economy at half speed, I lose 6 to $7 billion of revenue. So no matter what you guys need to get this done, if you can save us weeks even, let alone months and years, it's a huge return on investment. So I think I just want to stress again, this was government enabling our wonderful, innovative you know, um, dexterous private sector to, to innovate. Uh, and two is it was very strategic and it was exceptionally well executed when it came to designing the distribution and administration system. So, um, not a miracle,
1: but certainly an exceptional American achievement. Couldn't agree more. When you say when, you know, when you initially sat in that room and you were discussing about the, getting these vaccines available, you know, as far as timing goes, what was the timing that was that was going through? People said, I mean, I think, you know, we remember back in March of 2020 when we started hearing these initial discussions and government or excuse me, businesses closing down, schools closing down. When you had those first meetings, what was realistically, what were you thinking as far as when a vaccine would initially be available?
2: Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, first of all, we had a good vaccine before the end of January, 2020. We just didn't know it. (laughs) I know that sounds strange, but Moderna was already working with the NIH on some cancer research. And the team out at the NIH, as soon as we learned, uh, as soon as the DNA sequence of the virus was posted on January 10th, they went to work on developing a vaccine. In 10 days, they had a vaccine, okay? Uh, Again, we didn't know it. It wasn't tested. It didn't go through animal trials. It hadn't gone through human trials. And of course, the most challenging aspect of Operation Warp Speed was not the development of the vaccine, it was the manufacturing and scaling the manufacturing. So we had a good vaccine, we didn't know it. In the March and April timeframe, Peter Marks, uh, who's head of the uh, Center for Biomedical Evaluation and Research at the FDA, that's the agency that approves vaccines. Peter Marks had already screened globally those candidates that might be available, vaccine candidates, there were about 100. And this was in the March, April timeframe. And um, he and Bob Cadlick, who was the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, started identifying criteria by which we could evaluate. And they actually distilled that 100 down to 14 potential candidates. Enter Monsef Slawi, and I'm talking about the end of April, because so this was the end of April. And Monsef Slaoui was a board member at Moderna. He gave up that role to come in and serve the government. Okay. Monsef Slaoui knew we had a good vaccine as well. And when we interviewed, we interviewed about 10 candidates for this role of chief scientific advisor for Operation Warp Speed. Monsef Slaoui was the only one who said, I believe firmly that we will have a vaccine manufactured at scale, effective in those over age 65. Those were our criteria, by the way before the end of the year, he was the only one. So we had a sense um, in the end of April timeframe that it was possible, he gave a qualifier, which is almost everything has to go perfectly well. Um, Then uh, we got a little bit nervous uh, in the summertime of 2020, because if you remember, the infection curve was going way down in the late spring and early summer of 2020. And of course, anyone who goes through clinical trials understands You need to have positive cases to prove that the vaccine works. So we were actually thinking of setting up clinical trial sites in Brazil because they were experiencing a huge outbreak at the time. And I think AstraZeneca actually did that for part of their trials. Um, Post Labor Day, we had a huge surge uh, here, uh, end of August, beginning of September. So um, these uh, vaccines that were a minimum of 30,000 enrollees, which, by the way, is about 50% more than normal. A uh, minimum of 30,000. They were enrolling, Pfizer and Moderna were enrolling over 1,000 persons a day uh, in September. So we grew pretty confident at that point that we were going to have a good vaccine before the end of the year. And then it was all about manufacturing and scaling manufacturing. We had this great manufacturing advisor, Carlo Di Natari Stefani, who had been with Bristol-Myers Squibb and Teva as global manufacturing lead for decades. Very competent guy. He had to stand up or expand, help expand 27 different manufacturing facilities around the United States in seven months. We had to fly in equipment from Europe overnight. Uh, Gus Perna, the general, would send military air, charter military air to Europe to pick up the big vats for vaccine and get them here in one day instead of six weeks. All of this was coming together in the fall. And then it was really around preparing the country for distribution. And uh, we all fall, we enrolled 50,000 vaccination sites into our IT system so that we could deliver vaccines to them. And I just have to say McKesson, UPS, FedEx, these logistics companies, they were absolutely spectacular uh, in terms of Uh, you know, 99.9% on time delivery to the right place at minus 80 degrees Celsius. That's not easy, Dean, right? So anyway, we I'm giving you a very long answer to your question. We kind of had the sense in the summertime, the late summer, August, September, that we were gonna have a safe and effective vaccine manufactured at scale, effective in those over age 65 before year end. And indeed, we wound up having two of them and then the J&J one came in February, because it did have a problem in uh, September, October timeframe with its clinical trial. It had it halted for six weeks, if you remember.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you bring up a couple of really good points, you know, and I think this is a question a lot of people have. There, There was a lot of background information and a lot of background knowledge. You mentioned that the vaccine, Moderna had developed its vaccine. Moderna is one of the, just for our listeners, the preeminent uh, mRNA companies globally. Uh, so they have a lot of knowledge, background knowledge. So it's not surprising they had this. And I think the other point I just want to bring out is, you know, you mentioned 30,000 patient cl- or 30,000 subject clinical trials. You know, all of these vaccines underwent clinical trials. These were not, it's not as if the government stepped in. Certainly, there was an emergency use authorization to get these available to individuals sooner uh, than is typical, but. You know, can you point out a little bit about the uh, the FDA analysis of data, the clinical trials and uh, all the oversight that went into this? Although, you know, as I mentioned, the vaccines were available in less than a year. Typically, we're talking years or over a decade to get something like this approved. Um, You know, under the circumstances, it was done very quickly. Can you kind of talk about some of the challenges and just some of the background of what went into getting these authorized?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it starts by saying everything that is typically done in series was done in parallel. Um, so, for instance, um, from you know, different phases of trials, we were setting up the phase three clinical trials before the phase two trials began. Okay? Uh, we were manufacturing, we were acquiring raw materials, equipment, hiring workers or helping companies hire workers, setting quality control procedures before any vaccine was being close to being uh, approved, right? We talk about the FDA, Peter Marks is really a true patriotic American. I mean, the guy was, you know, he had a very difficult role, right? Which is the person who had to say, these are safe and effective vaccines. And what he did was he put out guidance in June that set the regulatory context for all of the pharmaceutical companies. He said, here's the standards by which we're gonna evaluate Vaccines. He updated that a bit in October. I talk about it in the book. It's a little bit controversial because he increased the time from the median enrollee in the trial, you know, uh, the time that had to elapse before you could submit an EUA. But nonetheless, he set the regulatory context very clearly uh, for success. And then he took his his business unit down there at the FDA and he reorganized them to work 24 hours a day over three shifts. OK, so that he promised us from the time the data are submitted and the application from a pharmaceutical company to the time we will render an answer on the EUA is going to be 14 days max. And he adhered to that. He delivered that three times. Um, you know, normally even the, the evaluation process could take many months. Right. So the FDA restructured its processes. It did not compromise a single standard of quality and indeed it, it probably made it more stringent because what Peter told us was the typical vaccine clinical trial was about twenty thousand enrollees. We had thirty in the Moderna plus, we had forty plus in the J and J and Pfizer uh, clinical trials. So every aspect of what was done in parallel, I'm sorry, what was typically done in series was done now in parallel, and that was absolutely a key to success. But there were a couple other things. One is use of the Defense Production Act. So this is in times of public emergencies, the federal government can tell suppliers who has priority for raw materials, spare parts, labor, and capital equipment. And we used that 18 times to support companies that were engaged in either producing the vaccines themselves or producing the equipment or the the, uh, raw materials that went into the vaccine. So that was um, uh, extremely important. And then the other thing is um, we made huge investments in the research development and manufacturing. So we paid for, uh, you know, uh, Moderna had multi-hundred million dollar grants. Johnson & Johnson had multi-hundred million dollar grants. Pfizer did not because it's really a BioNTech vaccine. It was developed in Germany. But we um, absolutely um, gave them the confidence by engaging in a $2.2 billion contract so that they knew they could sell their product. One last thing, because I know, Dean, you also have a legal background. We gave all of these pharmaceutical companies PrEP Act protection, Public Emergency and Preparedness Act protection. What does that mean? That means under emergency use authorization uh, conditions, none of these companies could be sued by any individual who got the vaccine and had an adverse reaction. That takes huge risk, as you know, away from the pharmaceutical companies. So the government did all of this in the spirit of enhancing the time frame, hastening the time frame, yet not compromising quality, and it worked.
1: That's certainly an understatement. We're talking with uh, Mr. Paul Mango, who was former Deputy Chief of Staff uh, for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. During this time, he served as formal liaison to Operation Warp Speed. Uh, Paul has a book coming out in March of 2022, Warp Speed, Inside the Operation That Beat COVID, The Critics and the Odds. Uh, where he really talks about some of the details. I'm looking forward to reading this. One of the uh, quotes that you had made was, you know, Operation Warp Speed was destined, was not destined to be successful. It had to overcome political agendas, media bias, government bureaucracy, and all the nuances of manufacturing and, you know, dealing with pharmaceutical companies. You know, how was that, dealing with all this, you know, all these separate interests that you know you would think would be aligned but perhaps in certain instances they not may not be
2: yeah um well it was uh, it was a journey let's put it that way and you know hey listen if you're going to be in dc if you're going to be inside the beltway uh just deal with it right i mean it is a political environment and by the way we were in the middle of a presidential campaign so you had kind of the normal environment hypercharged by campaign, but I was a little bit surprised that there was not the political uh, commentary and the you know naysayers, but really the experts who came on television the evening we had a kickoff in the Rose Garden of this whole program, Operation Warp Speed on May fifteenth. That evening, there were experts on television saying it is impossible, it is impossible to have a safe and effective vaccine uh, before the end of the year, and you know that is a serious lack of imagination, if you think about it, right? Um, if you were thinking about it in conventional terms, they were right. But the whole process had to be reimagined. And we had the leading vaccine development expert in the world, Monsef Slawi on our team. We had the leading manufacturing uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing expert in the world, Carlo De Natari Stefani. And we had the best logistics team in the world, Gus, General Gus Perna and his Army Material Command. These guys have been continuously supporting combat operations in the Middle East for 20 years. Do you think they understood logistics? They understood it better than anyone in the world. And I write in the book, it's a very important point for the listeners. When the federal government is used properly, okay? And when I say used properly, it enabled success, it did not deliver it. It let those who can deliver success, the Pfizer's, the Moderna's, the J&J's, the UPS's, the FedEx, they delivered the success. We just enabled it, but we did it with resources. We did it with setting a regulatory context. We did it with coordinating it. We did it with attracting talent. That's what the federal government did and we never let its reach exceed its grasp, okay? We did not develop plans for everyone to be vaccinated at the corner of Fifth and Vine in the middle of Omaha, Nebraska. We left that to the states and to the local municipalities and the public health jurisdictions because we don't understand those communities as well as as the local folks do. We basically did what the federal government could do best, marshal resources, marshal talent, uh, use the Defense Production Act, set a regulatory context, and then let the private sector absolutely innovate. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people can criticize, you know, that this was under the Trump administration and, you know, whatever, and that was going on the whole time. And there were naysayers throughout even the you know, even the candidates, uh, as you know, for president and vice president said you shouldn't trust these vaccines. But the team just put its head down and did what it thought was best for Americans. And I can tell you there were Democrats and the Republicans on the team and uh, they didn't care. They only cared about one thing, saving American lives. And that's what uh, that's what got them through it. So um, they were well shielded and uh you know we created basically a skunk works i think many executives out there know what i'm talking about Uh, we gave them the latitude we didn't micromanage them we gave them the resources and they 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 performed spectacularly well
1: they certainly did paul thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it thank you for your service to this country as well in the army and, and all that you've done with operation warp speed check out paul's book author of warp speed inside the operation that beat COVID the critics and the odds. There's a foreword in the book from Senator Tom Cotton, where he says, ultimately operation warp speed is not just an extraordinary technical achievement. It's a testament to American ingenuity and greatness. We should learn from its success and build on its achievement. I think those words really resonate. You know, we hear a lot of um, let's call it nonsense out there now, but you know, I think the greatness of America was really on display here. Paul, thank you for everything you've done with Operation Web Speed, and I can't wait to read your book. Okay, Dean, thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening today on, on Politics and Life Sciences. This is Dean Fennelry. Appreciate your time and look forward to you listening next week. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.